Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. This, of course, is Carlo, and uh, and with me today is uh, Matt Forbeck, uh, who is you've written quite a lot, haven't you, Matt? A couple of things here and there, you know how it goes. Uh, just just a few, <laughs> just a few. Um, and uh, I just wanted to bring you on because obviously you have your your Kickstarter coming up for the uh, five D and D five E edition of uh, Shotguns and Sorcery. We'll certainly give you some time to talk about that project. Excellent. Um, but before that, I did want to let you know that I had no idea that you had brought me so much enjoyment, uh, you know, like maybe 20 years ago or more uh, by writing Deadlands or oh, helping I, write Deadlands. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that. I, Deadlands, I didn't write. Uh, I was the developer for it. Ah, uh, there you go. Uh, it was the the, uh, the mastermind behind Deadlands was Shane Hensley, who was my partner at Pinnacle Entertainment Group, which is a company that we founded to publish Deadlands, right? Mm. Uh, and Shane had dragged me down there. Uh, he flew me and Greg Gordon out to his place in Blacksburg, Virginia, in the uh, Appalachian Mountains, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of App uh, Appalachia in southwestern Virginia, uh, to meet at one point and said, hey, do you guys want to help me make this game I got an idea for called Deadlands? And I said, I looked at it and Greg looked at it. Greg, unfortunately, was going through a divorce and didn't have the uh, resources at the time to really engage with it at that point. But I looked at it and said, yes, I like it so much. I want to buy into the company and uh, and start it up with you. So thank you. Uh, we had a lot of fun working on it. It was a fantastic game. And, um, you know, even though I haven't been involved with it for quite a bit of time now, I still love it to death. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's really, um, I think it really uh, threaded a needle that had not... I don't feel like it had been really uh, addressed at the time, uh, which is like the weird Western. Like we'd gotten, what was it? We uh, Wild Wild West, the the movie adaptation. Yeah. Um, but that was not well received. No, and it was not. It kind of killed us because we're like, you know, hey, if this does well, we had come out with Deadlands before that. We're like, if this does well, who knows, right? And then it flopped. We're like, oh, well, I guess mm. that's it for a while. But I mean, it it seems to me, given the um, the the like the many uh, other supplements that came out and stuff like that, it seems to me that like it, the Deadlands did fine on its own. Oh yeah, it could have. I guess it could have used a boost, but honestly, well, you um, know, we'd all love movie money, right? That's a whole different level of, <laughs> of, of production than a, a tabletop role playing game, but. Yeah, no, Deadlands was, uh, you know, at one point we were in the top five role-playing game companies in the country and uh, we're selling loads and loads of games and we were producing like, God, 20, 30, 40 books in a year. Wow. Um, it was crazy. I mean, they were all Deadlands books. Some of them were for the other lines we were doing, like Hell on Earth and Brave New World and the miniatures game we were producing. And uh, it got to be a lot, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, so, um, okay. and, and because I never, I never really, uh, I, I was in Puerto Rico at the time. So, uh, for whatever reason, like we had our own issues with, you know, getting all of everything that you could find possible. So, um, just to refresh the hell on earth was the sort of like the post-apocalyptic mo- modern ish type of, uh, uh, branch off from Deadlands. And yep. was brave new world, the one where they go and they, uh, they they go to another planet and then it's sort of like well there's no, other problems that, that that was I can't remember the name of it I wasn't really involved in that one but it was the something colony I think lost was. colony there, you there go. it is Deadlands yeah. lost colony that was the science fiction version that was the trilogy that Shane uh, conceived of when he came up with the game and you know obviously if Deadlands itself had not taken off at any point we probably would never have seen parts two and three uh, mm-hmm. Brave New World was my own creation actually it was a, a dystopian superheroes game. Mm. Uh, set in an alternate world where uh, uh, the super superhero powers have been outlawed and you either had to go to work for the government or you were a rebel. And uh, it was set in 1999, which is when the game came out. And it was really all about uh, how much liberty are you willing to give up in order to feel safe, mm. right? Which became kind of prophetic a couple of years later at, during 9-11. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> it was like, well, I'm glad I was talking about this beforehand because, you know, afterwards it was a really touchy topic. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. What? No. Yeah, no. Tell, well, tell yeah. me all about this time. We're willing to give up everything. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Come on, guys. Um, yeah, well, I had some I mean, pretty firm opinions about that, but there you go. So, so can I ask you if, um, because, uh, you know, obviously you, 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 I would hope that you did not have uh, a, a vision of the future to uh, write Brave New World. So, was because I'm I'm thinking when you said that I immediately my mind immediately went to for for good or for ill it went to um, Dark Knight Returns right yeah, where yeah. there is there is exactly that that type of um, sort of question that undergirds the entire um, the, that entire run yeah uh, and and it's sort of funny because as Superman that ends up being basically uh, the U.S.'s enforcer and it's so I mean it, it's it's a funny thing. Uh, because it's it's a darkly comic to have you know the you know sort of like the Kryptonian Boy Scout just be basically oh yeah well oh the, you don't want to engage <laughs> with regular warfare over there uh, I'll, I'll take care of it it's fine exactly now he became the tool of the state essentially right uh, he was uh, I sound like a communist every time I start talking about it but it's, um, <laughs> but yeah you know that was an inspiration Watchmen was an inspiration. Uh, mm-hmm. The funny part is that, you know, in my game, it was like the, the, the defiance against the Delta Prime people. Delta Prime was like the uh, superhero national SWAT team um, for the government. And then, you know, years later, uh, Civil War came out through Marvel Comics. And it was like, mm-hmm. people were like, did they steal that from Man, I was swiping from everybody, too. We all riff off each other. This is exactly <laughs> what you expect to have happen. And if you're part of the conversation, you're happy to be part of that conversation. But uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I had a ball working with that game. In fact, I got the rights back a couple of years ago. And one of the things I hope to be doing in the future is a new version of that. But um, I have been sidetracked by another superhero role-playing game I'm working on. So that is uh, taking the precedent at the moment. The Marvel one, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm working on, uh, I'm the lead designer for the new Marvel role-playing game. It's called Marvel, Multiper- Marvel, Marvel Multiverse Role-Playing Game. Uh, it's coming out from Marvel Comics, actually. They're not licensing it to somebody. They're actually hmm. publishing it themselves, which is really a blast to work with these guys. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Well, I, I mean, I, I played maybe like honestly the um, 
the old TSR uh, yeah, Marvel yeah. superheroes one was was it was fun, but it was also sort of all the tables were very wacky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could I mean you could just play you know for formulate your your hero. But you, you know that everyone's going to like someone's going to want to play Superman. At least one pe- one person's going to want to play Superman. And there's like uh, and granted, I know Superman's not Marvel, but sure, sure. you know how that works. Uh, and, and somebody like at least five people in the gaming group are going to want to be Batman. Right. Exactly. And, and there's going to be a fight about who who gets to be Batman. Um, so, yeah, we, we we honestly we played the the, the game as a one shot or, or, you know, a couple of like basically a small adventure just using the tables. And it, it's a blast because oh, it's, yeah. it's just, it's, it's so weird. I, I think I ended up uh, getting a, uh, what was it? You had some sort of cosmic powers and <laughs> butterfly wings and uh, some sort of sonic ability. So uh, I, I decided, you know what? Fuck it. His name, his name is Hepcat. And he was going to be like, <laughs> yeah, he, that makes sense. Yeah, like, like he was from another planet. And, yeah. uh, you know, like the last transmission they got before he came to earth was like from like the beat poets and shit like that. And uh, <laughs> he was just dressed you know, like Marty McFly when he was trying to be inconspicuous, you know? Yeah, that's a nice way to lean into it. And honestly, there are points in Marvel's history where they probably had a character that was very similar to that, right? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, their archives must be full of just just bananas character. There were times when, uh, you know, Stan and and Jack and all the crew there were trying to be incredibly hip, right? So, uh, And and a lot of times it meant that they were ahead of the times, actually, if you look back, you know, like with Mm -hmm. Black Panther and all sorts of other stuff. But sometimes it was really clumsy, right? So you you mean you mean like uh, Luke Cage? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> Sweet Christmas, like, you know, just oh no. Uh, and Luke Cage has evolved over the years, so he's not nearly as ridiculous nowadays. He's actually a pretty cool character, but uh, yeah, the, the the Luke Cage from the seventies and eighties was occasionally painful. So um, I mean, he he had like this weird aesthetic where it's like uh, he's sort of disco, but also sort of. Uh, so he was kind of street at the same time, right? He was yeah, like yeah. A, it's just a just a weird costume. Design. A good guy who had been wrongly in prison who comes out and he's got a yellow shirt that's open to his belt and uh, and a metal tiara <laughs> for some godforsaken reason. I have no idea why, yep. but who knows? Uh, I mean, the man had bulletproof skin. He didn't really need a metal tiara. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's a fashion statement. <laughs> it was. It was great. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, and and this is also like. Uh, I believe that this is where um, they had like Captain America, like uh, turn into nomad. Yep. And that was all it's that just era, such, a, right? such a weird uh, era. Right. Um, no, that just was very strange. Yeah. At one point there's a bit where Captain America confronts a guy in the white house and it's basically not ever said explicitly, but he's uh, confronting Richard Nixon, who uh, is then, you know, <laughs> shoots himself. Right. And you're like, what the <laughs> hell happened? Right. <laughs> Wow, uh, that that is some talking to that uh, Steve gave him. So, uh, yeah, I mean uh, that entire era is very it's very uh, interesting. I, I say weird, but really it is as you were saying. Like they they were trying to sort of figure out where uh, audiences and, and and the readership was going to be, uh, and you know the. I guess they wanted to also make a stand of some sort. And, oh yeah, exactly. And honestly, you know, uh, a lot of the guys with Marvel comics were Jewish kids from 
from lower Manhattan or whatever else in some of the poor neighborhoods. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they were, uh, you know, fairly liberal, liberal and politically oriented. I mean, people are like, oh, get politics out of comics. And, you know, the cover of Captain America number one is, is Cap punching Adolf Hitler, right? And it was mm-hmm. released a year before the U.S. got involved in World War II. And it was really actually kind of controversial at the time that, the, you know, mm-hmm. punching Nazis was considered to be, oh, bad. really? You really want to go there? And, you know, then a year later, we're embroiled in this horrible war and people discover all the terrible things that are happening. And uh, but, you know, Stan and Jack or not, that was Jack and uh, Jack Kirby and Joe Simon back in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so co- comics have always been political in a way. I mean, there's it's you shouldn't shy away from it. Right. It's, it's any good fiction is talking about the things happening today, even if they're talking about it through a lens. That yeah keeps you away yeah exactly it, right? right I mean yeah exactly right I mean that's you know we 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 deal a lot more with um more more on the uh sort of fantastic fiction like literary fiction well not literary I, I would yeah. just say literature pulp sure. all that stuff and and you're absolutely right you know like even through these levels of abstraction like everything is talking about you know what's happening at the time. Uh, it's just sort of filtered, like you say, with through these lenses that then, you know, oh, it's not it's not Germany. It's an alien planet you yeah, know, exactly. or something to that effect. No, that's one um, of the great things about science fiction and fantasy and, and games and whatever in fiction in general is that by setting it in a different time and bringing up the topics, it makes it a lot easier to talk about it. That it, it, There's all sorts of things that people get defensive about if you start talking about modern things, right? About things mm-hmm. that are actually happening in the headlines. But you can actually move things to a uh, a distant time or a different place, or you start talking about them metaphorically in other ways, and you can get people to explore those ideas in ways they otherwise wouldn't be comfortable. And I think that's right. always one of the great things of fiction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look at look at the perennial uh, interest in something like Dune, yeah. which you know, <laughs> I I, I under I, like I I understand it's a messy work. It's not you know like I don't think Frank Herbert was a great. Uh, literary stylist or anything of the sort, but like it's, it's such a weird world and it's, it's got this built in sort of dialectic to it that we're seeing now again on screen for, for yet yet again on screen. And I mean, audience. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and honestly it's, I, I, I just think it's really fascinating that it's something that uh, people want to go back to. And it's, it's so weird also because the, the entire idea behind like something like Dune is that time moves in cycles. Right. And here we, we actually see the cycles happening in our real world because we keep on coming back to it. Oh yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It still has something to say to somebody. Exactly. And then we, you know, every generation comes up with a different take on it too, which is kind of neat. I remember going to see uh, Dune, the original movie um, mm-hmm. by David Lynch, who's one of my favorite directors, right? That's not his best film. uh, I remember going with my dad, who was a big science fiction fan, and he got me involved in it. Um, He took me, we had to drive from my little hometown, Beloit, Wisconsin, down to Chicago to go see the movie. And like an hour, hour and a half away at the Woodfield Mall, the Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg, Illinois. And uh, when we walked in, they gave us a two page glossary because they (laughs) were really sure that nobody was going to be able to understand the movie without the glossary. And of course, what the hell are you going to do? You're going to flip around in the dark? Trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, and, he, and I had read the books. And even then I was like, wow, this is a really odd movie, Dad. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I'm actually, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to seeing it, dude. But I'm kind of holding out to see what some of my kids who are really All excited right. about it as well. 
Yeah. All right. That sounds great. Uh, yeah. Pass it on. Pass it on. Exactly. Um, but uh, so, and then uh, I guess what else? Uh, oh, uh, Blood Bowl, which, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I have to say I've never played Blood Bowl, but it's not something, it's not because I don't like it. I think it's such a darkly comic and absurd uh, concept that I want to play it. I just don't, I don't know that I have ever had the time and like the confluence of the right group of people to play it with and the time to play it with. Yeah. yeah. Cause you know, no, it's one of those uh, games. It's a games workshop game. So you're supposed to paint all the models up and it's supposed to look pretty and all that. And honestly, I'm a terrible painter. So I'm lucky if I hit him with a, a can of spray paint, but um, you know, but that was one of those, I actually worked for games workshop when I was fresh out of college at a student work visa. Uh, way back in 1989, 90. And uh, as when I came back, I, one of the first freelance things I did was work in the Blood Bowl Companion. And many years later, uh, they asked me to write Blood Bowl novels. Uh, actually, they had, I was talking to the guys at, games, at the Black Library, which is their fiction mm-hmm. division. And Mark Gascon is the, was the head of it at the time. And he goes, Matt, pitch us a bunch of novels, right? So I, I sent him like 10 ideas that were like one paragraph each. And he looked, I, put, I threw in Blood Bowl as a joke. Right? I'm like, come on, you're never going to do blood pool novels. And he looks at me, he says, no, 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 we want this. Nobody else is pitching them. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I ended up writing four <laughs> blood bowl novels and five comic books. And I had a blast with it. It was a lot of fun. I mean, but it's this extended joke about uh, American uh, professional sports where, mm-hmm. you know, they're drinking killer genuine draft and Bloodweiser. And uh, the, <laughs> I came up with a team that was known as the Bad Bay Hackers instead of the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> I gotta apologize for my voice. I was actually at a convention this week, and I'm usually not quite this this scratchy. Um, but I was at GameholeCon here in Madison, running games, and uh, I, I forgot how hard it is to talk to people for eight, you know mm. eight to ten hours a day. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> what what did you guys play, or did you run like uh, demos of uh, shotguns and sorcery? We did actually. I played a lot of stuff. I, we didn't play too much. We did. Um, my son and I. My son who's 22 and graduated from UW Madison last year. Uh, in the pandemic, seems to want to follow me and uh, follow my footsteps to become a game designer and such, and a writer. And uh, so he wanted to do the fifth edition version of Shotguns and Sorcery, which is based on some novels that I wrote back about nine years ago. Um, and I licensed out for a role-playing game that these guys uh, publish as a cipher system game. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're that's uh, license is expired. We're finally uh, delivering last bits. There was a Kickstarter that the guy didn't deliver on terribly well, but it, you know, he had a lot of good reasons and I helped him bring it over the line. Uh, and we're delivering, I think the last thing tomorrow morning. Um, oh. and then Tuesday we're going to punch a big green button that says launch this thing. And we're going to do shotguns and sorcery, the five E source book on Kickstarter. Uh, but my son, Marty actually did the right. He did all the, uh, the five E conversion to turn it over to dungeons and dragons. Uh, and a lot of the rest of the stuff is my writing in the book, but it's mostly the background stuff. So, it's really been a lot of fun. So at the show, we did um, we ran three games a day of shotguns and sorcery, and I would run some of them. Marty would run some of them, and then I also did a couple different seminars. Uh, I did a panel. Mike Merles interviewed me for a panel as well. Mike's one of the guys who designed Fifth Edition. It's been with Wizards for like twenty some years, uh, maybe longer. And uh, uh, then more, we also played an Aliens role playing game as a charity event for extra life. And we had a ball with that too. That was a lot of fun. Cool. Nice. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm guessing that the conversion, uh, that's a lot of math. (laughs) No, it's actually not that hard. I mean, the funny part was originally I came up with shotguns and sorcery as an idea for the third edition world hunt. 
right? Uh, back in like 2000, year 2000 or so, mm-hmm. uh, Wizards of the Coast announced that they were looking for a new world to go alongside Forgotten Realms mm-hmm. and Dragonlance and all that stuff. Um, and they said, everybody said, who wants to, who's interested, send us in a one page idea sheet. Mm-hmm. And I had sent in a few. Uh, one of them I really liked was Shotguns and Sorcery. And the one that ended up winning was Eberron, which Keith mm-hmm. Baker wrote. Uh, and ironically, like the year before that, I had been mentoring Keith into how to do freelancing. And then he went and won this thing, <laughs> uh, which you know, put a boatload of money in his pocket. I was really happy for him. And then I ended up writing, he wrote the first trilogy of novels, and I wrote the second trilogy of novels. And they came out like uh, they were interweaved every other month. One of us was coming out with a novel. So I wrote books for that. So I didn't feel bad about it at all. Um, but I thought, oh, I got this great idea. Let me see what I can do with it. And I shopped it around and I had, you know, I talked to Alderac Entertainment Group. I talked to White Wolf. Uh, eventually Mongoose Publishing made me a really good offer that they're going to license the property from me and then hire me to write the books, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's a great deal. And then uh, my wife got pregnant with quadruplets and it just shelved everything for a while. So. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was just like, oh, no, um, I, I, I was in the hospital with her when she was on bed rest with the quads in her belly. And, um, and uh, I remember calling up Rich Baker uh, at Wizards of the Coast, who was my editor on Unapproachable East, which was a Forgotten Realms book. And mm-hmm. before that, you could have set your clock by me. I had every deadline in my life. You know, I never missed anything. Turned things in early. And that was the reason I got a lot of work. And I called up Rich. I said, Rich, I'm not going to be able to make this deadline. I'm sorry. I'm really trying. He goes, what's going on? I explained it to him. He's like, you take all the time you need, sir. <laughs> and they were very kind to me, but it was, it was, those were crazy days. And it was well, until about imagine, 10 yeah. years later, Robin Laws asked me for a short story for this anthology he was doing called The New Hero, uh, where he had this theory about, you know, uh, in a lot of fiction, you have this thing where you have a, uh, a hero and you want to see them go through a change as they go through a story, right? Uh, but Robin had this idea that not every hero is like that. Not every bit of fiction is like that. Mostly serial fiction. So if you look at like Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes doesn't change, right? James Bond doesn't mm-hmm. change. Batman mm-hmm. doesn't change. They are who they are. And they actually change the world around them by being true to who they are. And he wanted to have people come up with stories that would show this. So I wrote a shotguns and sorcery story for that. And I was like, oh, cool. That was kind of fun. I thought, oh, mm-hmm. I should get back to that. I kept writing, you know, ended up being a lot more stories in the day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you have what the three three novels, uh, several short stories in that uh, in that world setting. Yep. Um, can, can we um, can can we circle back a moment sure. to Blood Bowl because yeah. I just find it I I find it hilarious because it's not it's not rugby, it's not any yeah, it's it's not American <laughs> football either, even though it pretends to be right. Um, that was one of the things they had me working on when I was there, and I was like. I think it was 21 years old. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, well, you know, all we know about American football is what we see once a week in the middle of the night. They play one game over here and we don't really understand the rules. Right. So, <laughs> um, so we made up this game, which is a lot of fun, but really doesn't reflect American football. So I, in the Blood Bowl Players Companion, which came out back in like 92 or something like that, 91, um, I ended up writing a lot of rules that were like, OK, if you want to make it more like American football. This is what a kickoff is. This is what a field goal is. This is how you would put these in the game. <laughs> and you know, I, I had not played a whole lot of, I, like in high school, I think I'd, I played like two weeks of high school football before I realized it was, uh, it was painful. <laughs> I, wasn't, 
wasn't the kind not, of thing not, I wanted to do. So yeah, it, it, I think I, I I figured that one out without ever really trying out for it, and uh, instead I played soccer. Which yeah, uh, that same year seemed- I ended up doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, we founded our our team sport there, and when I was a junior, it was a varsity sport, and I lettered two years. I had a great time with soccer. Uh, a lot yeah. less painful, right? Oh well, yes, yes. Although when also, I went over to go work at Games Workshop, I played soccer with them in the evenings a couple of times. They're like, "You're terrible!" Like <laughs> in America, I'm actually a really good high school player. But, well, you know, <laughs> you know that was, soccer was kind of new in America back in like the mid '80s. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, it's it's like a it, it it's it's enshrined over in Europe. So yes, um, but I, I I think it's it's really fascinating to me and, and sort of hysterical that um. For for all intents and purposes, Blood Bowl feels like what football should be because yeah. I mean you know football is in fact very sort of um, sort of it, it it it's it's almost like a miniatures game in and of itself with real players that are playing out like this uh, battalion you know sort of formation oh, yeah. and stuff and it's like what <laughs> I mean football's so, a weird game because I mean what other game do you like run a play and then reset everything, right? It just doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. And just about everything else we play in real time. You know, there's a clock going on. There's a clock in football, but you have to actually stop and let everybody reset so you can come up with plays and try to fool the other team. That's really a rare kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah, like like to your point, like soccer makes a lot of sense because like if you play soccer, you can figure out more or less what the rules of basketball are. You can figure out, you know, some of the... It, it, granted, there's some wonkier rules de- depending on the different sports and whatnot, like hockey. But all of these sports run on a, a running clock. There's no timeout, you know, except for very specific situations, you know, like exactly. uh, a, f- a free throw or a penalty shot or something like that. Uh, but that's it, you know. And football just loves timeout, and you can, and then you make a strategy of using timeout. Yeah. You know. No, I mean, like I had no idea what I was doing with football really until I started playing Madden when I was in college, right? Because um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I understood how it worked, I understood how you scored, but I couldn't tell you what like a, a nickel defense was or an eye formation or any of that kind of stuff until <laughs> I actually started playing you know, Madden football on the Sega Genesis. Mm, and, wow. Yeah, it was just wildly different. I'm like, oh, now I get it. Now I see what they were trying to do when they were teaching me this shit. I wasn't listening. <laughs> um, and it's, see, you know, see, it's the, great the follow- I can transfer and watch football games a lot more intelligently, but it's kind of wild. Yeah. The, the, the follow-up to that would be a much more mystical game, uh, and it would be based off of baseball, American right, baseball. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, those folks, yeah, they don't quite get all that stuff either. I mean, baseball, it's, it's me trying to figure out uh, – uh, cricket, right? It's just yeah, never right. going to happen. No. It's sort of like baseball. They hit a ball. No, yeah. no, it's not. There's not even close. There's a ball. There's other than that. It's just ridiculous. So. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I'll be upfront. I have no clue about uh, cricket. I've never even bothered to learn because it's like okay, it's it's a game that they play over there. It's fine. I, I'm not a, a super for, a sports fan either, but you know, I don't want to get too stereotypical uh, of of being a nerd over here. Right. I'm <laughs> but, actually one uh, of these nerds who really likes sports. Right. I grew up as a my dad was a, he played baseball, I played uh, basketball, whatever. And my grandfather was a football high school football star and all that kind of stuff. So I always loved sports. I was raised to to appreciate them. In fact, I actually produced a basketball collectible card game card game for. Uh, for Wildstorm, which was a division of Image Comics back in the early 90s. Wow, yeah, I remember that. Uh, it was called Fast Break, and man, it did not sell. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. If it had an NBA license, I think it would have been fantastic. But 
as it was, it was just like made up characters and goofy shit that we had thrown in there. And there's actually a card with me as a, ba- as a basketball player, which is entirely <laughs> laughable. Um, but you know, and you're right. The crossover between the two is just not very strong. Right. Uh, and I understand people, you know, no matter what you're geeky about, you don't have time to be, be geeky about everything, but sports fans are just another flavor of geek. To be honest mm-hmm. with you, they're just people oh, who yeah. are really enthused about that one particular thing. Yeah. I mean, and, and to be fair, like, it's not like I didn't like to play sports. See, that's the thing. I think while I was playing it, I was involved, you know, I, I could become engaged with, you know, like following the specifics of it. But, you know, now that I'm not playing, like, I'm, I'm not going to, like, honestly, like, uh, baseball, I played baseball for many years, you know, yeah. um, and, and don't ask me to watch a baseball game. It is, <laughs> it is so, like, I, I thought I thought that uh, baseball games were long until I, I sat at a bar with uh, some roommates to watch, to really sort of accompany them to watch like uh, uh, a football game. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like an hour game really <laughs> with like three hours of commercials. Oh my God. Yeah, no, uh, it, it can be tedious, especially if you, if you understand the context and everything that's going on, it makes sense. That's where you have commenters telling you like, this is why this is meaningful. This is the rivalry, whatever, right? And nowadays we have people trying to do that with esports, right? And like, <laughs> I, my kids watch this stuff, and I, I'm like, you're gonna watch somebody play a video game. I'm like, the only the closest experience I have is like uh, leaning over somebody's shoulder in an arcade when I have my quarter up next to theirs, right? But mm-hmm, uh, yep. but you know, it's really a big business. There's a lot of people who love doing this, what uh, love watching it, and the announcers are just they're still in their infancy of this thing, but they're they're starting to catch up, right? With like this guy is the most hated rival of this guy, and blah blah blah. <laughs> um, but it's the context that makes that gives it meaning. Otherwise, you're just running around, you know, shooting people, which is you know okay, fun. But um, you know, you don't really want to watch other people shoot people. You want to do it yourself. But then yeah, when you're like, yeah, these yeah. are some of the best people in the world doing this, and this is why they're fighting with each other. And this guy used to work with that guy. They used to date each other or whatever. You know, it's, <laughs> it's exciting that way. So well, I mean, and and to be fair, like if we can get into. Um like the 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 blooming of like online role playing like oh yeah yeah you know, uh like there's a bunch I, I i can't even follow like i i it's such a, i'll i'll be i'll put put on my uh, my old old man uh <laughs> get off the gra- get off my grass kids uh, hat moment and go like i just can't really sort of follow the like these groups that are like on Twitch, you know, playing D and D or, or what yeah. have you, you know, like the different, uh, whatever their, their flavor of role-playing game is. And it's like thousands of people tune in to watch that. And you're like, I'm like sitting there, I guess you watch it while it's in the, you know, you put it in the background while sure. you're doing something else or something. That's a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my kids do a lot uh, of that stuff, right? They watch things like critical role. My, my son is the biggest fan of um, the adventure zone, right? The Macleroot family. That does mm-hmm. this. And, you know, actually having listened to a bunch of, when it's good, it's freaking great, right? It's, mm-hmm. the, and I think one of the neat things about this, and the Diana Jones Award gave actual play the award a few years ago for this reason, is that it shows you how incredibly exciting and how wonderful this art form can be, role-playing games, right? Mm-hmm, um, right. Because most people, when they're playing role-playing games, the best game master, the best game they're ever going to be is whoever they happen to live near, Right. And whoever mm-hmm. happens to be their best friend or whatever. And those those games can be incredibly meaningful because you know and love everybody you're playing with, right? But um, but seeing actual things like where you have professional actors doing it who are, you know, do a great job and are trained in improv, or you got the like the McElroys who are all, you know, professional comedians doing this stuff. 
and watching and seeing the beats and the timing and everything. It's really kind of stunning and entertaining. For me, a lot of it's because, you know, I spend most of my time, I don't commute to a job, so I don't have to, uh, I don't have a lot of extra time to just sit there and listen to things. And mm -hmm. uh, if I'm trying to listen to somebody else's words while I'm writing, it's incredibly disruptive. I just can't pull it off, right? So I don't <laughs> have the time to invest in this the way that my kids do it. But they'll, you know, listen to a podcast or, or whatever while they're running around the house or while they're playing video games. And they're very good at multitasking in a way that I just generally don't embrace, you know, because again, I'm an old fart now, so. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I I feel you. Like I I I can't even listen to music that has like uh like spoken words in it if I'm like writing. Yeah. It, it just yeah. it just like my brain is trying to do. Like it feels like my brain is trying to rip itself in half, trying to do two things at the same time. Right, because you're trying to can't. interpret those words coming out of there at the same time you're trying to put words out. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, if you're lucky, you only get a little of that bleeding over one way or the other. <laughs> um, and yeah, I could, I, you know, I usually write with soundtracks, but if it's a, uh, a, a, an album I love and I've heard a million times already, I can put that in the background because I know I, I, I know it by heart. I don't have to worry about it. Right. So I felt yeah, like, yeah, you know, exactly. I grew up listening to like Led Zeppelin and stuff. So if I'm, if Led Zeppelin's in the background. I'm good. Right. Otherwise I'm listening to whatever the greatest soundtrack is. One of the neat things about writing for a lot of different, uh, brands, a little, uh, intellectual properties and franchises that I could often find soundtracks for what I'm working on, right? When mm. I'm writing Halo novels, I can listen to the Halo soundtrack. Uh, when I'm writing Marvel stuff, you know, there's a, you know 23 different film soundtracks out there to choose from, not to mention television, video games, and everything else. So, right. Uh, it's that's nice to be able to get that stuff to get you in the mood theoretically and, and get you going the right beat. It's good fun. Well, yeah. I mean, it's 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 very strange, right? Because it it does like if they've done a good job of creating like a soundtrack, like an instrumental soundtrack, you can sort of glean an emotion that you can then mine for your writing. Exactly. Right. Um, it, it makes you feel like the thing, you know, that you're yeah. writing about. I was writing a novel for the leverage TV show and uh, John Rogers is a friend of mine. He's one of the creators. And I'm like, you know, what should I listen to for this? They didn't have an official soundtrack out or anything. I wound up listening to the Incredibles soundtrack. Right? Uh, <laughs> just, that is that is honestly that is a very good soundtrack. I just love, um, uh, I I just love what they did with it, which is like this weird sort of uh, brass brassy, uh, but also almost James Bondish. Yeah, type exactly, of. exactly. It's got that seventies adventure film kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it it really is uh is you know it's got a nice pace to it too. So you don't yeah. like ever feel like it's lulling you to sleep. It's like just propelling you along. Mm -hmm. I, I like yeah. writing to it for that reason because I want my my writing to have that same kind of energy, right? When people yeah, are reading, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, apart from you know, obviously, it, it it belonged to a movie that is probably one of the best, I would say, superhero movies I've I've ever seen. Oh yeah, honestly. no, The Incredibles is fantastic. It, it is really a genius movie on many many levels. But um, so so I guess maybe we could uh, we could talk a little bit more about uh, let's let's get into it let's get into the the shotguns and sorcery uh, yeah so this is this is like a noir ish yeah it's type of uh, fantasy world kind of think if you took uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and mixed him up with Raymond Chandler right um, so uh, the main city is this place called Dragon City where all the adventures take place or, or around that and it's kind of like if Minas Tirith had been given 500 extra years to kind of graduate into 1920s Los Angeles, right? Um, 
but it was you know compacted like that with everybody on top of each other. So what happened is uh, 500 years ago there was a zombie apocalypse that destroyed the entire continent. Right, that was done by this creature, this uh, necromancer called the ruler of the dead. And as the zombies slaughtered everybody, the free peoples who were able to ran ahead of them and tried to figure out a way to uh, form an alliance that could stop the zombies. And he just realized they were never going to be able to do it. So they ended up going to Dragon Mountain, which is kind of like the lonely mountain of the Hobbit, right? Uh, and they go to the dragon in there and they say, Dragon, uh, if you're willing to protect us from the zombies uh, for uh, long enough so we can build a wall here and keep them away, then uh, we'll give you whatever the hell you want. And the dragon's like, well, that's fantastic. I've been thinking about ruling an empire for quite some time. And this new city you're building will be my empire, and I will be the dragon emperor. Um, and there's all sorts of backstory that comes out in the stories and the novels and the games about this stuff. But uh, then it's 500 years later, and you got this city where magic has kind of grown up uh, and and become and permeated the city to the point where instead of light bulbs, you have glow globes everywhere around that, mm-hmm. that turn on as lights go off. And um, you, if you want to, uh, there's not a whole lot of streets or wagons or traffic. But uh, if you want to uh, go from one end of the city to the other, you put up your hand, you you flag down a, a taxi, which happens to be a flying carpet, right? Um, <laughs> and, you know, because I, I like to do stuff with sociology and politics and everything else, I'm like, okay, who lives where? I'm like, well, the wealthy and the powerful and people with magic are end up at the top and the, and the poor people end up at the bottom of the hill. So we have the dragon at the top of the spire, the elves just below that, the dwarves below that and the stronghold, which is not only at that level, but, you know, embedded in the mountain. And it goes down and down until you get to the village, which is mostly humans. Uh, and then beyond that, you get uh, the the orcs, the kobolds, the goblins, the hobgoblins, whatever, live in this area called Goblin Town, which is right next to the Great Circle, the wall. And where they live, it's the slums. And at night, they can hear the zombies moaning and scratching at the wall, right? Uh, so you know, the shit all flows downhill for them. Um, so there's a whole lot of, a lot of uh, sociology and class structure in this thing that I built into it. But it's a really fun place to play it. I mean, if you want to then go out and have an adventure, you know, you build this group of outcasts from their various circles of society, and they have to figure out how to go out to the wilderness. You know, how do they get past the wall themselves from this side? And even better, how do they get back in? And mm-hmm. how do they go raid all these places that have been abandoned for centuries, uh, but are now filled up with zombies and other monsters? Or alternatively, how do you have adventures inside the city, which are maybe a little bit more personal and noirish about, you know, uh, a woman comes in and says, my my wizard husband's been cheating on me. I need you to go spy on him for me. That kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, it's uh, so all sorts of stuff like that. We've uh, so far, we've got uh, two short stories, a novella, three novels, a comic book, an art book, uh, the Cypher System role playing game, a monster book for that, an adventure for that. And uh, now we're going to have the fifth edition source book that we're launching on Kickstarter on Tuesday. Actually, according to this big clock in my corner here, it says uh, one day, 17 hours, two minutes and 40 seconds. And that and that should be running. What is it till uh, I'm going to guess till around the 26th or the 27th of uh, November. We're actually going to run it until, let's see, November 16th. We're going to do a three week one instead of a four week one. Part of which is because we didn't want to bump up and get too hard against Thanksgiving or Black Friday or anything like that. Uh, I had actually planned out this four-week Kickstarter, and as I got closer to it, I'm like, I need another week to prepare, and I'm going to GameholeCon and everything else. Uh, So I just made it 
a three-week one. A lot of times when you do a Kickstarter, those two weeks in the middle of them are just dead as can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's right. this lull that you get. People join at the beginning, and then they like, oh, they forget about it. Until you send out an email saying, by the way, we're almost ending. And then they're like, oh, God, I got to join, you know? Um, <laughs> right, right. So uh, I'm working with Backer Kit on the marketing for this thing, which I've never done before. So it's going to be kind of an experiment for me. But one of the things they recommend is that you do something that encourages people to join in the first 48 hours uh, because that gives you the momentum and the attention and all that kind of stuff to get going. Um, so for us, I always hate you, know, you show up like 10 hours late and you don't get the special thing or you don't get, you know, you don't get the $10 off or whatever. Um, so in this, we try to make it something that'd be fun, but not vital for you. So if you're in the first 48 hours and you back, you'll get an autographed copy of the book. Uh, and then we have a deluxe version that automatically comes in an autographed copy. So you can just always bump up that anyway. But if you back one of those in the first 48 hours, then we will sign and number it as well. So if you're the kind of collector who cares about that kind of thing, it's a special thing. Uh, if you're not, then you're like, eh, okay, I missed it. I'll just back the thing anyway, hopefully. so. Yeah. Because we want everybody to enjoy it and feel like they got something good out of it, not that they lost out on something. That's all, you know, the opposite of what we want them to do. Uh, interesting thing is I'm probably not going to be selling this in stores. I don't think I'm going to try to go through distribution and all that kind of stuff. So there may be some stores that will back it at a retailer level and they'll have some copies. Uh, and I'll probably do print on demand and PDFs after this, after we sell through the initial front run. But uh, if you want it, the best way to get it is the Kickstarter, right? It's going to be uh, the best and cheapest way for you to get it. And you'll get it first before anybody else does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that sounds, uh, I mean, honestly, that it, there's so many different things that um, my brain sort of like drew, <laughs> yeah. like pulled pulled a bunch of uh, other references because I, I, I immediately thought of, oh, a Dragon Emperor. Oh, that sounds like uh, Dark Sun uh, or uh, yeah. Shadowrun. Or <laughs> I actually worked on Dark Sun. I worked, uh, whatever, I wrote uh, Mind Lords of the Last Sea for Dark Sun. Uh, oh, it's. Say, so. Honestly, I, still, still one of my favorite, favorite settings. It's so. It's so weird and yeah, exactly. bleak. Uh, it's it. so great. It's so great. Honestly, two of my friends uh, who mentored me into the industry were the guys who wrote that. It was uh, Trey Denning and Tim Brown, um, oh, both of okay. whom have been friends of mine for decades now. Right. It's one of the wild things. I was talking to somebody at uh, at Game Old kind of about this. He said, "You know, the thing that really predicts success in in the, in the gaming industry or a lot of uh, creative industries is longevity. Right. If you manage to stick around long enough, how through whatever means, you know, if you're Obviously, if you're well-funded by uh, trust funding, you never have to worry about money. You can stick around forever, right? Uh, a lot of us wash out because we can't afford to do it. But uh, if you can manage to stick around long enough, a lot of this stuff comes around. You know, these guys were my mentors are now my peers and my buddies that I've known for decades. Uh, one of the guys I ran into at the show was a guy named Steve Winter, who was uh, with TSR for many years and then with Wizards of the Coast. And now he's with Cobalt uh, and he's been doing a lot of freelancing. But Steve ran the first ever convention game I ever played in when I was 13 years old in, in uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Um, and to then see him 40 years later here, walking around and be able to hang out with him, it's just a real treat. You know? Yeah, that's wild. great. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's sort of like, uh, it, it, it would be equivalent for, for, like for me to like make a gaming buddy and uh, we're, we're, we're still somewhat, you know, we, we still throw business each other's way, you know, like 20 yeah. years from now. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly how it is, right? And you know, a lot of that's just because you learn to trust each other. I mean, it's not like it's supposed to be this insular network of nepotism and whatever else. But the idea is, and I, I try to tell people this too, is when you're looking to get work in any industry, whether it's fiction or, or computer games or video or, or uh, tabletop games, 
the people who hire you want to be able to trust you to produce, right? And uh, when you're new, they don't know you, so they don't know how to trust you. But if you manage to build yourself a reputation and uh, as somebody who can not only do stuff very well, but on schedule, then they will just throw work at you forever, right? And that's really the key thing. Once you get to that certain level where you, they know they can trust you, you get a reputation as being reliable, uh, then that happens. I mean, when I, when I was making the transition from tabletop games to role-playing games or to, to novels, that was a tough transition for me, right? Even though there mm. were companies I was writing for, uh, Games Workshop and Wizards of the Coast both had novel divisions, right? I'm like, guys, I've written millions of words for you. Let me write a novel for you. And they're like, ah, we don't know if you can finish a novel, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, I wrote one in college, but it's trash and I shouldn't show it to anybody. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, when the hell am I going to find time to just write a novel while I'm writing all this other stuff, right? Uh, but I happened to be complaining about this at a bar at a convention and a guy named uh, Ed Pugh from Reaper Miniatures heard me. Yeah, he was at the next table. He leans over and says, Matt, you want to write a novel? I'll hire you to write a novel. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, hell, okay. Uh, so I ended up writing my first book was for this game called uh, CAV, Combat Assault Vehicle, which was huh. Reaper Miniatures' uh, giant mech fighting game, right? Oh, and nice. It was like a 40,000-word novel. He paid me, you know, it was the bare minimum to be called a novel. And uh, and it was like five cents a word, right? Flat fee. Mm. And... Uh, I turned it into Ed. He FedExed me a check the next day without even looking at the manuscript. And <laughs> six months later, it was a book because it was not traditional publishing. It's a tabletop game company. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's like, here's, here's the book. And I'm like, I, I literally, at that Gen Con, walked over to Wizards of the Coast and to Games Workshop and said, here you go, guys. And they're like, oh. And like within three months, I had contracts for two trilogies, uh, one with each of those companies, right? Just because they're like, oh, now we get to, we can tell our bosses we can trust you because look, here's a book. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, uh, see, I, I I went into the wrong the wrong branch of writing. <laughs> see, <laughs> fiction writing you have to you have to actually write the damn thing first, you know, I, <laughs> and, I never, and then and then query it. You know, yeah, exactly. I have never done that. I've actually every book I've ever sold, and I've written something like uh, somewhere around 35, 40 novels. I, I've honestly lost track at the moment. Um, uh, every one of them has been done on a pitch, right? Even the original novels I wrote for Angry Robot, um, which was coincidentally Mark Gascon used to run the Black Library. It was a guy who hired me to write the Blood Bowl novels. When he started Angry Robot, he said, pitch me some ideas, right? And <laughs> so I said, here's a couple ideas. He said, okay, well, we're going to sign you for these two books here. And then the third book I wrote for them, which was called Carpathia, he said, I have a great idea for a book map, but I'm never going to be able to get it done in time and it needs to come out by this certain date. <laughs> Would you like the idea? <laughs> like, so, go so ahead, I'm tell me the idea. And then, you know, I'm pretty sure you're going to buy it from me. What do you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at the cover of this. I, I And I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to confess that I did not, like, there's a lot of stuff on your website, Matt. Sure. And so I... I, I I concentrated on, on, you know, like the RPG stuff, but so what is Carpathia about? I see the Titanic or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, the, and this is the, the funny part is like the idea is just this tiny, brilliant little thing that you have to do something with. Right. But um, the Carpathia is the name of the ship that picks up the survivors of the Titanic disaster. Mm, right. Okay. Uh, literally in history is right. Mm -hmm. And Carpathia is also the name of the mountain range in which sits Castle Dracula. Mm-hmm. So yep. what happens is the Carpathia is actually coming back from America to Europe 
While it's doing so, it's bringing vampires back from the new world to the old world. And those are the people who pick up the survivors of the Titanic. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Right. Cool. And of course it all spirals out of control from there. So yeah, it's, 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 it's the, so you wrote the, the, the extended edition of the Voyage of the Demeter, right? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> In it's Dracula. Just, and it all Except got, updated to updated to uh, you know steam steamboats and stuff like it, that. It got much more spectacularly bad for them. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun writing it. I mean, a lot of the characters in it end up being the descendants of the uh, of the characters in the original Dracula novel by Stoker, right? So um, I, I had a ton of fun writing it, and uh, you know, I the first couple of books I wrote for them I actually got optioned for films too. I mean, they didn't happen, but it was always nice to get option money. So. Well, I mean, yeah, you get you get a check, and you know, perhaps on the promise that something will happen, and yeah, if it does, if it does, it's great. If if it doesn't, you still got the check, right? Yeah, these these guys who optioned Immortals, which was the first original novel I ever wrote, came out through Games Workshop or through uh, Angry Robot. Um, they kept optioning it for like 10, 12 years, right? Just kept sending me a check every few years, uh, and it's not like you know uh, we're going on vacation hunting money. It's like or buying the house. But it's 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 good, you know. Maybe a small vacation, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A day trip, maybe. <laughs> exactly. You know. But but yeah, I mean, I, money's money. I'll, I'll you know, like honestly, for something that you already did. Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, free money at that point because you don't have to do any additional work other than look at the contract and make sure you're not screwing yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that that's fascinating. Like honestly, I. I Maybe I should rethink this whole writing fiction from the other side uh, idea, uh, and and see if I can f- figure out a way to write novels for for games in some way, shape, or form. It's it's been really tricky. I've had this really strange career as a novelist. I've written all these different books, but you know, in the funny part, is I don't have an agent. I've done all these deals myself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's nobody shopping this stuff around for me. Actually, to my great shame, I have a novel I sold to Tor on my own. Back in 2012, that I still haven't delivered. <laughs> oh no! As an original novel, what happened is my editor got fired for sexual harassment, and it threw off my entire schedule. And then my my dad got sick, my mom got sick, my dad my mom died, uh, all sorts of crazy shit happened, and I'm still trying to get back to it because I'm dying to write this book. Uh, and they've just basically told me when you get to it, you're good, right? Um, but that's one of the reasons it's a good idea to write your book first because you know sometimes life happens and you're unable to get back to the things you want to get back to. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't want to be a Patrick Rothfuss or a- Well, you know, I, and I know Pat, right. Pat's a great guy. You know, Pat takes his, own, he'll, he gets to take his own time. George R. R. Martin, they get to take their own damn time. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mainly just poking fun because oh, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, like I, I, at this point, like someone like George R. R. Martin, like if he never finishes it, I'm fine. I got, oh, yeah. I got the enjoyment I was going to get so far. He's given me, you know, several books to enjoy. And if he never finishes it and, and he makes like the people that they're that already mad at him for not you know, being on <laughs> schedule, even more mad. Well, that, that's just, that's just that's icing crazy. on the cake. Right, yeah. you know? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's tricky because, you know, the neat thing about it though is if somebody is late with something, there's so many other things out there to read, play, do, consume, whatever. You don't, you know, don't get pissed off at somebody because, you know, for whatever reason that they're probably not going to share with you, they haven't gotten to it. Right. There's just too much going on in their lives or, you know, they're, they're, things have gone off the rails for them. You just don't get to see in their lives. And it's really not your business. Right. Um, so if it goes bad, you say, well, you know what? There's like every every time I walk into a bookstore, it's just intimidating. There's so much to read. 
why am I going to worry about whether or not uh, the sequel that I've been waiting for forever is ever going to come out? Um, I did have a painful experience with Pat the first time I met him, though. It was uh, uh, somebody I, I didn't know who he was. and We were on a panel together and somebody asked me how long it took me to write my fastest novel. Right. Because I'm a really quick writer. And mm-hmm. it turned out the second Blood Bowl novel, no, the third Blood Bowl novel. Um, when I, this was the first trilogy I'd written for Games Workshop. It was early in my novel writing career. And they had not, they had decided they did trust me quite large enough to give me the advance for the entire trilogy up front, right? So they would commission each book in the trilogy as I finished the previous one. And they had forgotten to send me the, the contract for the third book, right? And mm-hmm. I was busy with other shit. So I was like, okay. Uh, I'm fine. And whenever they're ready, I'll just start writing. Right. And I got an email from my editor saying, how's that third novel come? I'm like, well, you never actually sent me the paperwork for it. It's not going anywhere. He says, Oh, Oh, Oh shit. We solicited that book. <laughs> right. It's, it's gone through the whole process here. People are expecting it. And if we don't have it within two weeks, we'll have to resolicit and it'll throw everything off. The numbers go down. I'm like, Oh fuck. Um, and so I actually, I, I looked at my schedule. I said, can you, <laughs> This is over Thanksgiving. I realize you don't have that in the UK, but can you give me an extra two days? Because my family's coming in for Thanksgiving. So I took two days off for Thanksgiving, but I actually managed to write this entire 80,000 word novel, 80 some thousand word novel in two weeks and get it into them. Um, wow. But, you know, part of it was because I already had an outline that had been improved. And I had been writing about these characters for two books before that, right? Um, so I just basically sat down and worked. I wrote like 7,000 words a day. And the last day I wrote 11 some thousand words to finish it off. And I turned it over to them and they, they loved it. Right. And it's actually, uh, there's a lot of energy in that book because I was desperate to get it done. <laughs> and Pat, meanwhile, is next to me just rolling in pain as I'm describing this. I'm like, what's going on, Pat? And he's like, oh, uh, you'll, you'll find out. So that's, <laughs> you know, but Amazing. again, you do what you have to. I was doing that because I love doing it, but it was a paycheck and this was a, contract where guys were expecting something from me. And, uh, you know, if you're running your own stuff and you do it on your own schedule, and if you're enough of a success that you can tell your author, your editor, it's, it's ready when it's ready. Great. I mean, honestly, uh, there's a, I think it was Miyamoto who did, uh, the Mario games, right? Super Mario games. Mm-hmm. And he had a, uh, a saying that he had posted on the wall in the office at Nintendo that said, you know, a, a, a late game is only late once, but a bad game is bad forever. Right. Um, so you want to have something you turn in that you can be proud of because no matter what it is, it's going to be something that's going to follow you around forever. So do your best work on it, even if it's late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, um, but yeah, I honestly, 80,000 words in, uh, in two weeks, that is. Wow. Well, uh, the thing is, it got, I was writing about 5,000 words a day when I was doing role-playing games for a nickel of work. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, in 2012, this is actually related to shotguns and sorcery. In 2012, I had this freaking crazy idea, and then my friends goaded me into actually doing it because I thought, "Oh, this is a joke." I'll, I, I, you know, I had this idea called Twelve for Twelve, where I was going to write a dozen novels in the year 2012, right? Mm-hmm. And so I right. cut them down to 50,000 word novels, and uh, which is still a novel but short, right? Most mm-hmm. of the novels for fantasy and science fiction, if they're not doorstops, are about 80,000 words, and. Yep. Um, uh, so I was writing 50,000 word novels and I broke them into four trilogies and uh, ran a Kickstarter for each trilogy and they all funded um, and then wrote 12 novels. I tried to write 12 novels that year. Turns out I forgot how long it takes to run a Kickstarter, which is a real pain in the ass as mm-hmm. I was learning it. 
Um, but also that year, I, did, I wrote 10 of those novels. I wrote a, a novel for the TV show Leverage. I wrote nine issues of the Magic the Gathering comic book for IDW and a novella for StarCraft II that Blizzard published on their website. Um, so I failed, but I failed well, right? <laughs> and I delivered the other books as quickly as I could after that. Um, but yeah, you know, set high goals. And if you happen to fall short, uh, you know, at least you've hopefully accomplished a lot anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Makes but the sense. second one of those trilogies was uh, Shotguns and Sorcery, right? I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. good. And then the third trilogy was going to be this other book that I was going to write. And I I contacted my editor at Tor, uh, Jim Frankel. And I said, um, you know, I've had, I pitched this to you like two years ago. Are you ever going to tell me if you're interested in it? He's like, write me up a little summary in a couple chapters. And I didn't. And he said, yes, I'll buy it. I'm like, ah, shit. Now I got to come up with another trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Damn it, you you bought it too fast. Yeah, I know. It was, it was a good problem to have, mind you, but it was still like, oh, oh, damn. And I think the, the last trilogy I came up with for that year was this series called Monster Academy, which was uh, kind of like a, a juvenile hall for young monsters in a fantasy mm-hmm. world, right? Like uh, in D&D, you always have the problem, like you go and you kill all the orcs, but then there are these orc babies in the corner and, you know, they're not evil. What are you going to do with them, right? Do you, <laughs> do you kill them? Well, you, you, you let them into the wild on their own? You can't do that either. So. Uh, in this kingdom, they actually bring them over to the Royal Academy for Creature Habilitation, where they try to train them to be productive members of society. And uh, so I wrote a trilogy of books for that. And then Calliope Games is actually producing a board game, a, a card and board game based on that. It's coming out next year. So that should be kind of fun, too. Oh, interesting. I've been That's working cool. with them and the guys at Lone Shark Games on that. So it's been a real kick. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, um, so, uh, and you said that the, the Kickstarter for uh, Shotguns and Sorcery will be going live this coming Tuesday? Yep. Tuesday, uh, what the heck does that make it? Uh, October 26th, at about noon central time, I will punch a big green button. Uh, if you want to sign up for the pre-launch so you get an email, they'll tell you when it is. You go to shotgunsandsorcery.com. That'll take you to the Kickstarter pre-launch page. You put in your email address. And then when I push the big green button, you'll get an email saying, hey, it's going. Come on, join us. Hurry up fast. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I will definitely send that out to uh, our, our listeners, uh, but uh, we will also uh, try to help you out in any way, shape, shape or form we can uh, to get the word it. out. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And so, uh, yeah. And and so, uh, Matt, what? where can... Uh, where could our listeners uh, find your other stuff that is not shotguns and sorcery? Sure. Uh, the first place to go for any of my stuff is at forbeck.com, F-O-R-B-E-C-K.com. You can also find me at Twitter at mforbeck. I'm on Facebook at forbeck. Uh, I'm on Instagram at mforbeck, I think. It usually depends if somebody grabbed my name or not first. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm out there. I'm happy to communicate with people. I love talking to people online. I do social media for fun. I'm really terrible at marketing. So I usually forget <laughs> to say buy my books, but, um, and you know, it's, if you don't enjoy this stuff, you should go do something else essentially. So, um, and then uh, if you go to forbeck.com, it's got the list of like the, most of the stuff I've done in the last 10 years. And, but I've been at this for 30 now, which is kind of crazy. Oh man, I'm getting old. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, and, and yeah, uh, for sure. And, and honestly, like there's only so much space on the page. Oh yeah, I keep telling <laughs> uh, myself, I'm going to go back and find all the covers and stuff. But I mean, a lot of that stuff's out of print. The stuff I did for like 
second edition, third edition Dungeons and Dragons and other games and whatever. I'm like, well, what the hell's the point of post- posting up stuff that people are going to have to go to eBay to find? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or like, uh, what is it, thrift books or yeah, you know, exactly. all the used book places, books, right? So, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, um, and, and so uh, Matt, uh, thanks for coming on. I do want to ask you, um, and and I don't want to put you on the spot, but we, I'd love to have you back, maybe uh, perhaps after the, the the Kickstarter funds, and you you take a long a long breath and a break from running the Kickstarter. Uh, maybe talk some more uh, games or something along those lines. Uh, would yeah. you be able to come back? Oh yeah, Excellent. I'd be happy to. Man, you know this is. This is not just my living. This is my passion. I love talking to people about this stuff. And it's uh, as I was running games this weekend, I haven't run games at a convention for a while. I just, I, it, it gets me so jazzed up and so enthused, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. to be able to do that kind of stuff, I'll, I'll chat with anybody about this stuff. I mean, normally you have to buy me a beer, but <laughs> at a bar at a convention, but I'm happy to sit <laughs> online and talk to anybody about this. And you've been Excellent. a great interviewer. And I've had a lot of fun chatting with you. So I'd be honored to come back. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. It's it's very kind. Um, but then uh, what I'll do is I'll thank our listeners for, for listening in. And again, thank you for coming on to, to talk about your, uh, like all of your projects and the one that's upcoming now. Uh, so uh, thanks again, Matt. And uh, thank uh, thanks to everyone listening. And we'll catch you next time on Podside. <laughs>